All right. I just want to get this image fresh in our mind here. Isaiah 42. This is what God the Father says about His Son, His chosen servant. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He won't shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. And in his law the coastlands wait. Father in heaven, I pray that you would bring us, bring our hearts to a place of meditation on your holy word this morning, and even more so on your holy son, who you desire to present before us. You desire to say, here is my servant. You desire to say, behold, my son. And so, Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would see you presenting your son to us this morning, and we would be changed from one degree of glory to the next. Amen. Amen. Well, good to see you this morning, brothers and sisters. Today is a great day in the church calendar. It's the feast of the baptism of our Lord. That's always the Sunday immediately following Epiphany, and last Sunday was Epiphany. So, we're the feast of the baptism of our Lord. So, of course, the gospel reading today is from Luke 3. It tells the story of Jesus' baptism in the River Jordan. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, but... The story of Jesus' baptism is actually not just a Jesus story, it's a Trinity story. It's a story of the Trinity. We see all three members of the Trinity present, and so Jesus the Son is being baptized, and the Holy Spirit is descending. It's alighting on him in bodily form like a dove, and the Father is saying from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So we see all three members of the Trinity present. And only in the Gospel of Luke do we get this extra detail that this happens while Jesus is praying. And so the, the, the intimacy between the Son and the Father in Jesus' prayer life is a real point of emphasis for Luke, and we see that here, even at his baptism. So what we get in this passage, right on the front end of Jesus' ministry, before he's done anything, is a public affirmation of his sonship. And this was foretold in Psalm 89, which we just sang together. It says in Psalm 89, verse 26 and 27, He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So here... The Father is presenting Jesus as the Messiah, who's not only the rightful king of Israel, he's the rightful king of, of all the earth, the highest of the kings of the earth, it says. But that's not all, because God had promised his servant David, back in 2 Samuel, he promised that David's offspring would always, forever, eternally reign on the throne. Now, the people of Israel were like, well, how is that going to happen? How is there going to be a king that reigns forever? Well, we find out here in Luke 3, don't we? Because, because Jesus is not just the Messiah, he's the divine Son of God, and he's immortal. And so he is able to reign, he is able to be king forever. Because he's both fully God and fully man, he's able to fulfill both parts of this promise. 
that there will be somebody from the line of Israel, from the line of David, a, a, a descendant of David according to the flesh, as Paul says in Romans 1, but declared in power to be the Son of God. He's the eternal Son of God. Because he's both, he can fulfill both parts of this promise. So at the baptism of Jesus, God the Father is sort of presenting his Son as the rightful King of the earth who will reign forever and ever. But what will his reign look like? What kind of king will Jesus be? That's what we're going to spend the rest of the morning looking at out of Isaiah 42. If you please grab a pew Bible and turn to page 602, Isaiah 42. Now Isaiah 42 is one of the four servant songs um, that occur in the last third of the book of Isaiah. They're very, very clear prophecies um, about the Messiah that would come about Jesus. Um, they're quoted from a lot in the New Testament. Um, and they all talk about this mysterious servant figure who will suffer vicariously for the sins of others. He will ultimately be accused um, of being accursed by God, but he will be vindicated by the God, uh, by, by this God. And uh, he, um, through him... All the nations will be unified. Salvation will be brought to all the nations. Now, the most famous of the servant songs, of course, is Isaiah 53. But we also see a servant song in Isaiah 50, in Isaiah 49, and here in chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. Now, we're going to focus mostly on verses 1 through 4. And i got to say that this is one of the most precious passages in all of Scripture to me. Um, this passage has just been food for my soul for many, many years. And the picture that it gives of Jesus is stunning. I think it's beautiful and it's succinct. It's almost like everything that you see in the Gospels could come under the heading of one of these phrases. Um, and uh, not only does it directly relate to the Father's proclamation of Jesus over his baptism, which is the reason why it's in the lectionary this Sunday, but it's quoted at length in Matthew 12 about Jesus' healing ministry. Um, all of verses 1 through 4 are quoted in Matthew 12. It's one of the longest quotations of the Old Testament in the New. And I want to submit to you that this morning that this picture we get of Jesus is a picture of two things. It's a life of intimacy on the one hand and impact on the other. So intimacy, intimacy in his life with the Father and impact in his mission in the world. And as we'll see the second really flows from the first. These things are, are very related to each other. Just as Jesus would later teach that the, that, the, that the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is it's like the second. It's related to the second, which is to love our neighbor as ourselves. So these two things are connected. Intimacy and impact. This is really the kind of life that all disciples of Jesus are called to live. So this is not just a good description of Jesus. It's a call to anyone who would follow him. All right, so turning our attention to Isaiah 42, the Lord says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. And so what's going on here is that the Father is affirming the Son. Just as we saw in Jesus' baptism in, in Luke chapter 3. In fact, Old Testament scholar um, Christopher Wright says you could actually translate the Hebrew phrase here 
um, in whom my soul delights, with whom I am well pleased. You could actually translate it that way, which would make the connection even stronger, of course. Now, I think, and I, I just said this a few weeks ago, um, I think that we live actually in an affirmation-starved culture. So we're obsessed with this idea of affirmation. We're all seeking affirmation from people. We're seeking affirmation for our identity. You know, so, many of our, uh, so much of our music, so many of our movies focus on this theme. And I think there's a special concentration on um, affirmation that, that we all desire to have through a parental figure, through a father, the affirmation of a father, especially, is a major theme in music. But also people are seeking for affirmation. They're seeking their sense of identity from somebody that they're pursuing for romantic love. Maybe I'll find out who I am. Maybe you can teach me who I am um, if, if I can have this relationship. And I wonder, Christian, whether you know this morning on a deep down spiritual level that the affirmation of God the Father is all that matters. Friends, this this impulse we have to say, I need affirmation. I need somebody to speak this word of affirmation over me. And don't get me wrong, it's good to encourage one another. It's great for a father to affirm their child, right? But on a deep down spiritual level, the bread that our souls are yearning for is a bread that only God can provide. Only from him do we get that sense of identity. Only from him do we get that sense of affirmation that fills our cup and never runs out. It becomes a well in us of living water that never dries up. This affirmation of our Heavenly Father, this divine yes over our lives. We need to hear it. We long to hear it. Our souls are restless until they rest in Him. And, and, and what's happening here in Isaiah 42 is, is it's saying... You can't seek this anywhere else. You can't get this anywhere else. And we get that in, in this next phrase. It says, I put my spirit upon him. Now, the Hebrew word for spirit here is ruach. And, um, and there's actually a contrast being made because the last verse in Isaiah 41, and Isaiah 41 is all about God is, is telling the people of Israel, you can't find any satisfaction in idols. Why do you keep seeking idols? They can't do for you the things that I can do for you. And so the last verse, right before verse 1 of Isaiah, 40, uh, of Isaiah 42, the last verse of Isaiah 41, the Lord says this about idol, idols. He says, behold, they're all a delusion. Right there, He says, their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind, empty ruach. Same word. This word that can mean wind or breath. Or spirit. You remember in Genesis chapter 2, when God creates Adam, he gathers the dust of the earth and he breathes his ruach into Adam, and Adam becomes a living being. That's because God has life in himself. If we, if we seek for affirmation, if we seek for this living water from, from some other thing that doesn't have life in itself, it's going to run dry. But with God, it will never run dry. And so when God says, I've put my spirit, I've put my ruach upon him. He's saying, yes, and, you know, as opposed to these idols that you can't trust in, they're empty wind, even your loved one. I, 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 anybody who's married has learned, man, it's like, I'm trying to be a good husband, but I can't be a Messiah here, right? I'm trying to be a good wife, but I'm a poor substitute for God. Right? As parents, we try to reflect the love of God to our kids, but we ultimately come to a place where we're like, all right, I'm trying to reflect the love of God, but I'm not God. 
Right? I can't be God in this relationship. I could never be. I'm finite. They need something that's infinite. They need someone that has life in himself. They need somebody that can give them life, that can give them the spirit, that can give them the breath, the wind of God. This is what we all need. So he says, I've put my spirit on him. And it's for a purpose, guys. It's for a purpose. And I want to I start by affirming and saying, yes, part of the, the purpose of God giving us his spirit is, is so that we can experience his love and affirmation. That's part of it. Romans 5.5 5 says that God has given us the gift of the spirit. He's, he shed abroad his love in our hearts by the gift of the spirit. So that's part of what happened. It's like it's, 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 a, it's, it's God's way of loving us in a manifest way. And it, it, it's amazing if you've ever had that kind of encounter with God, that kind of mystical encounter. I know many of you have had many encounters like that. And it, it fills your cup and it sort of undoes you. And you're like, you're there. I can't believe it. And you're saying yes and you're meeting me. And unworthy as I am, I, I, I can't believe this. It's amazing. And so that's part of it. But notice in this passage, it's not actually focusing on that part of it. It says, I put my spirit on him and... He will have spiritual goosebumps. No. I have put my spirit on him and he will speak in strange languages. No, that's not what it's saying. I put my spirit on him and he will do a dance. No. It's saying I put my spirit on him. Why? For this mission to bring justice to the nations. Now, I wonder if we have an expansive enough view of the Holy Spirit to think about it in that sort of way. I know in the Christian church, Especially since the 70s, there's sort of been this Holy Spirit fan club. And uh, this, this kind of, you know, sort of a movement of people who, anything that the Holy Spirit is doing new, they want to go check it out. Something's going on in Toronto? Let's go check it out. Something's going on in West Florida? Let's go check it out. I want to see, I want to see this new manifestation. I want to see people fall out. I want to see people lark like a dog. I want to see people laugh. I want to see... But I, I have a question. Does anyone ever go to a revival because they're passionate about justice to the nations? Because that's why God is giving his spirit to the son in this passage. Do we ever say, I really need to encounter the Holy Spirit because we need justice on this earth? How will we ever, how will we ever have the, the energy? How will, we ever not, how will we ever continue to pursue this unless we're affirmed by the Father, unless we're filled up by the Father? What if people went to revivals out of a passion for justice for the nations? That's the kind of revival I want to have. He says, I put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice in the streets to make it heard. In other words, Jesus, who's one of the, he's the most misunderstood figure in all of human history, did not spend all of his hours trying to prove who he was to people. You notice that in scriptures? So oftentimes when Jesus finishes saying something, everybody's confused. And he's just like, he who has ears, let him hear. <laughs> and he just moves on. <laughs> people don't understand who he is. And he's like, he heals somebody. He's like, don't tell anybody. <laughs> That's just going to confuse them. <laughs> so Jesus is constantly misunderstood. But he doesn't cry aloud or lift up his voice in the streets. He doesn't need to fill his sense of identity through other people's understanding of who he is. 
Why? Why doesn't he need that? Because the Father's already told him who he is. This is his beloved Son with whom he's well pleased, in whom his soul delights. And so he's, he's operating from that place of strength. He's operating from that place of life. That's, friends, that's, that's the place that God wants us all to operate out of. We can hear that word through Christ, through the ministry of Christ. We can hear that word over us. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Have you put your faith in Jesus? This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. We can all hear that word of affirmation that fills our cup. So that we're not having to, to, to seek that from others, to try to convince others about how great we are or how misunderstood we are. I want to quote at length from the book Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. And in particular, in his chapter on solitude, he talks about the importance of being silent at times when we're misunderstood and letting God be our justifier. He says, one reason we can hardly bear to remain silent is that it makes us feel so helpless. We are so accustomed to relying upon words to manage and control others. A frantic stream of words flows from us because we are in a constant process of adjusting our public image. We might say in a modern translation, keeping control of the narrative. We fear so deeply what we think other people see in us that we talk in order to straighten out their understanding. If I have done some wrong thing, or even some right thing that I think you may misunderstand and discover that you know about it, I will be very tempted to help you understand my action. Foster goes on to say that one of the fruits of silence is the freedom to let God be our justifier. We don't need to straighten others out. He says there's a story of a medieval monk who was being unjustly accused by, uh, for certain offenses. And one day he was looking out his window and he saw a dog biting and tearing a rug that was hanging on a line. And as he watched, the Lord spoke to him and said, this is what's happening to your reputation. But if you trust me, I will care for you, reputation and all. Foster concludes that perhaps more than anything else, silence brings us to believe that God can care for us. Reputation and all. And I think more than anyone else in human history, we see this spirit in Jesus. I heard a psychologist say to me one time, Jesus is the most differentiated person in human history. He, he knows how to differentiate his identity from those who, he, you know, from, from other people who he might be tempted to seek that out of. He was willing to be misunderstood, mistrusted and misrepresented. And he trusted the Father to care for him, reputation and all. Do you want to be that kind of person as well? It's not easy. It's not an easy thing. I remember when I was in college, I've told some of you this story. And I really had first started following Jesus. And uh, Carissa and I were serving as Bible study leaders for the first time. And uh, all growing up, I had always been this sort of like class clown funny guy. And so it was like part of my identity to like be funny. And so in any social setting, um, I didn't really realize this at the time, but, but I, I almost had this, this sort of underlying need to establish in a social setting that I am funny. 
I want you to know this about me. <laughs> a clever person. You can substitute other things uh, for, for yourself or, or for a sinner such as I. You know, you want people to think you're intellectual. You want people to think you're a ladies' man. Whatever the case may be, right? And so um, I had this, this sort of, you know, unconscious pull to want to establish myself as a funny person. And I would realize, you know, it's my first time leading Bible study. I'm trying to have a, a positive spiritual impact on other people. That um, I, it would lead me to say little sarcastic things or little hurtful things to people unconsciously that I didn't really mean to say. But I, I just didn't have control over my, my mouth. Or maybe the Holy Spirit was wanting to do something else in that moment. And I found myself like telling way too many like ridiculous stories and sort of quenching what the Holy Spirit was trying to do. You understand what I'm saying? Does anybody, can anybody testify to this sort of thing? Right? So, so I remember there was probably like a nine-month period where I was really wrestling with this. And I was really saying like, God, like, like I, I, I feel like I keep hurting the people in my Bible study or I keep quenching what you're trying to do. It's like, I can't even help myself. Like, what do I do? And um, I remember coming to this, it was like sort of judgment day. It's like this faithful day. And I, and, I, and I said to the Lord, I said, you know, God, if you never want me to be funny again. So I like, you know, it's like I, I was taking this part of my, of my identity and I was sort of putting it on the altar. Like, if you never want me to be funny again, I surrender this to you. If you never want me to tell another joke, I surrender this to you. And I... I'm just going to sort of take my hands away and trust you with it. And, and I just got to tell you guys, that, that, kind of, that kind of activity, that's excruciating. It's, it's like taking up your cross and following Jesus, right? <laughs> it's like anybody who tries to keep their life will lose it, but anyone who's willing to lose their life for my sake will truly find it. So I'm, I'm setting this on the altar, and it's very difficult. Like I said, if the Lord had been telling me to do this for like nine months, if I finally got to a place where I like, took my hands away, and I was like, all right, if you never want me to be funny again. Like, and I was serious. Like, I wasn't just like sort of fingers crossed, like, I know that's not what you really want, but I'm going to pretend. No, it's like, God, like, maybe I just can't be trusted with this. So I give this to you. And in this instance, at least, you know, sometimes God does take it, and he's like, thank you. Yes. <laughs> You do not have the self-discipline to drink alcohol, or you do not have the self-discipline for this or that or whatever, and we give that to the Lord, and the Lord's like, I'll take that. <laughs> Excuse me. But at least in this instance, I felt the Lord take it and wash it off and clean it up and dust it off and give it back to me and say, no, that Taylor, this is a part of who I made you to be, to be able to bring levity, to have a sense, of, uh, a sense of humor, to bring some kind of joy to a social situation. But now instead of this thing controlling you, you're going to have self-control over it. Right? So the Lord desires to make us freer and freer and more and more who he intended us to be, not less and less who he intended us to be. Now that's really difficult because we're afraid to surrender certain things to him and say like, but this is a part of who I am. And I, I got to say, from that time on, uh, whatever, whatever, you know, funny guy or sense of humor or whatever, it's like, it's never been the same for me. But it's better. It's better because I'm not a slave to it anymore. And there's other parts of my identity that God wanted to tell me about. And it's, I, I was not only crowding out this, the work of the Holy Spirit for other people, I was crowding it out for myself. And there was other things that he wanted to teach me about who he was calling me to be. <clears throat> I want all of us to take a minute to think 
Of all the things that might draw your identity, maybe being an intellectual, maybe being a success, perhaps there's a certain relationship where you say, if this doesn't work out, all is lost for me. Maybe it's your family's approval or, or professional praise or acceptance or academic praise or acceptance. Which of these things is your biggest rival in terms of drawing your identity from that thing instead of from God? Right, we continue. Jesus is also a gentle king, as I was talking to the children about just a few minutes ago, especially towards those who are most vulnerable. Verse 3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Now I talked to the kids about what a bruised reed is. If you've been to this church for longer than a month, you know what a faintly burning wick looks like, too. <laughs> sometimes we forgot to put oil in the candles, and there's just this smoldering little fire. Sometimes it might even go out. But Jesus is able to be gentle with us. And um, I think this is a really, really important, very, very good news. Some of us feel like bruised reeds right now. Some of us feel like smoldering wicks, dimly burning wicks. And the Lord is saying, you can trust Jesus. You, there might be wise people in your life, and, and they might be fairly trustworthy, but it's not the same as Jesus. <laughs> What you need is Jesus. What you need is the Messiah. What you need is the Son of God. He's the one who, he's the only one who's ultimately able to be gentle enough with you to not cause further damage, yes. Um, even the most skillful minister, even the most understanding spouse is going to cause further damage. Even the most loving parent is going to cause further damage. But he's not only able to not cause any further damage, he's able to heal us, to make us whole again. It's, it's not doomsday if, if you're a bruised reed. It, it is in, in terms of this sort of plant kingdom. <laughs> but it isn't in terms of your spiritual life. And the reason why Jesus is able to be gentle with others is to go back to this. is He isn't relying on them for a sense of identity. In the same way that the Lord was trying to teach me to be sensitive to the people in my Bible study, to like put them before me, is a very hard lesson. I'm still learning these kinds of lessons all the time from God. Um, he's trying to teach me to be gentle with people who might be a bruised reed. Maybe there's a faintly burning wick there. Well, the reason why Jesus is able to be totally gentle, he's totally trustworthy, is because he has his cup filled from the Father. Amen? Amen. says, and he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now I wonder if when it comes to the mission of God, some of us here today have grown faint or become discouraged. Perhaps we started out well, perhaps we were sharing our faith, we were giving sacrificially to the mission, we were prioritizing kingdom things with our time. But we sort of grew faint from that pace of life, probably because we didn't keep up a life of intimacy with the Father. But for whatever reason, we grew faint and we've largely abandoned the mission of God because we say, I've tried living like that before, I got too tired, I just don't do it anymore. 
On the other hand, maybe some of us have gotten discouraged. Perhaps someone spoke a discouraging word over you. Or perhaps you didn't see the results in your ministry or in your endeavor that you hoped that you would have. And so you've set aside the mission of God. If this is you, perhaps your first step toward reclaiming a life of impact is for you to allow Jesus to call you back to a life of intimacy with the Father. If the love of the Father is filling your cup, you will not grow faint. You have something to sustain you. If you allow his word of encouragement to be spoken over you daily, you will not become discouraged because you're perpetually encouraged by the word of the Father. I want to take a minute to summarize. And then allow this passage to sort of give us a vision for life together in 2019. We began by discussing the baptism of Jesus, that this was sort of the Father's way of presenting his Son as the rightful and eternal King of the earth. And then we asked, well, what kind of king is Jesus? And we got our answer from Isaiah 42, that Jesus is a servant king who lives a life of intimacy with the Father and a life of impact in the world. And we talked about how these two things relate to one another. Jesus is able to sustain his life of impact because he lives a life of intimacy. He's able to be gentle with others because he's not relying on them for his sense of identity. He doesn't grow faint or get discouraged because his cup is always overflowing with the love of the Father. And I'm convinced that in our own day, Jesus is still seeking to lead all disciples, anyone who names his name, into a life of intimacy and impact themselves. In fact, we, we, we follow him as our king. We follow him as our champion, our general. His mission becomes our mission. His mission of justice to the earth, his mission of salvation over all the earth becomes our mission. As most of you know, today is Core Sunday at Incarnation, where we have lunch afterwards. Actually, we've got two Sundays in a row like this. We come together, we seek God's vision for us as a church in 2019. And as I prayed about that today, um, the Lord has impressed these two things on my mind. And just to get more specific, I just want to say, one, I believe he's calling each of us to grow deeper in our secret life with God. He's calling us all in this time to grow deeper in our secret life with God. Number two, he's calling each of us to ask the question and to seek the answer to this question. What is my mission? What is my mission? Now, I know, I know in a general sense, my mission is the mission of Jesus. My mission is justice to the ends of the earth. My, my mission is salvation to the ends of the earth. But how is that made manifest in our life more specifically? And if I can add a third thing, it's just that he's calling us to do this together. He's calling us to do these two things together. Now, when I say that he's calling each of us to grow deeper in our secret life with the Father, I'm talking about real time set aside to meet with the Father in prayer and in his word. And now, I just want to say, of course, this will not look the same for all of us because we're not all in the same season of life. But setting aside secret time with God is properly basic to a life of discipleship, no matter what season you're in. And we want to help everyone to grow deeper in that this year. For some of us, that will mean sort of like a recommitment 
We used to do that. We used to have intimacy with God. We used to feast on his word. Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone. We used to feast on his word. We used to set aside time for prayer. And we, we don't anymore. Or, or we have a paltry commitment to that. And so it'll mean a recommitment to that kind of life. For some of us, uh, it'll mean learning to pray for the first time. You know, it'll mean like, oh, wow, I, I don't think I've ever been silent for that long. I don't, know, I don't know if I know how to understand the Bible and we help each other with that. For some of us, maybe you're in, in a season of intimacy with God and it'll just be a matter of going deeper. What does it mean to go deeper? As you reflect on your life, what are the things that help you to remain centered on the reality of God upholding you, of God delighting you, of His Spirit empowering you? Even more so than, than a time for you to love God, it's a time for you to remember that God loves you. A time for you to remember that his soul takes delight in you through his son Jesus. As far as the second thing of asking God, what is my mission? We'll have much more to say about this during lunch after service today. But as you reflect on your life, what opportunities are there in your life right now to be a part of the servant's mission to establish justice on the earth and to extend his salvation to all people? I think some of us are called to start something new to do something entrepreneurial in the kingdom. And some of us will be called to hop on board to somebody else's vision, to serve behind the scenes in some sort of way. For some of us, it'll mean recommitting our lives to something that God already told us a long time ago, and we've sort of gotten off track. But we're all called to ask this question, what is my mission, and to seek a more holistic answer. And this final point, that we're called to do both these things together, I hope, I hope that's encouraging for you as it is for me. So we're called to encourage one another to live lives of intimacy with the Father and impact in the world. This means that our church activities will center around these things, yes, but more importantly, I think this has to happen on like a friendship level, on a personal relationship level. We'll need to help each other understand what prayer looks like in the different seasons of life as a student, students helping students, you know, people who've been mothers for a while, helping younger mothers learn, like, how did you do this when, when it was hard to concentrate and there was a baby? And what, like, how do we do this, right? What does intimacy with God look like for you as you approach retirement? All these different seasons. And we need to help each other ask this, answer this question, what is my mission? That's not just a question for us to answer ourselves, but for that to be answered in community. And maybe we even link arms with people in this community. We say, we have a common mission. We do prison ministry together. <clears throat> we tutor youth. We do hospitality evangelism. We visit the lonely. This is what we do together. <clears throat> I think the beauty of Jesus' personality and his faithfulness to accomplish his great mission is unmatched. And it's unmatched because his whole identity, he's the only one who ever let his whole identity be rooted in the Father's love and calling. He lived so beautifully, so freely, so effectively, and we're called to live this way too. And if we begin in secret with the Father, He'll show us how to do that. Amen? Amen.